Hey, everybody. I'm Paige. And I'm Chris. And welcome to another episode of Animates. Today, we're going to be discussing Avatar The Legend of Korra, Book Four Balance. Uh, and as the title suggests, this is where they try to wrap everything up and a nice little bow of all this conflict is going to be resolved and all the plot threads are going to be tied up and everything is just going to be nice and wonderful. <laughs> yeah, balance has been a huge theme of the series and they're obviously, you know, they make the whole... They really bring that theme to the forefront for book four. Cora spends a lot of time being a wimp, but not in a bad way. In a, She's seen a lot of shit. She also still has mercury in her body sort of way. <laughs> um, there's a lot of... So the this season aired completely online. Uh, which is like a big, so web episodes, they aired on Fridays. Um, it started in on October 3rd, 2014. So this was a day I had already graduated. I was already well into graduate school when this was going on. And it was weird because it felt like it just had like being online just sort of like changed sort of the whole feeling of the show. It was just, it wasn't as well advertised. And despite the fact that it still maintained a pretty high quality, it just sort of felt like it was being relegated to Nickelodeon's Reddit, like, like step, like the, the, the kid over the redheaded the stepchild. Yes. The redheaded stepchild. Um, yeah, I actually, this was airing during my senior year of college, and the first, they were the first episodes of any Avatar series I'd seen since randomly catching, like, an Avatar episode on, you know, Nickelodeon and syndication when I was a kid. Um, and I saw them because a lot of my friends were watching it, and they were like, come in here and watch Korra with us. I'm like, all right, I have no idea what's going on, but I guess I'll watch an episode <laughs> And I think the uh, first episode of Core I ever saw is uh, the episode of Book Four with Toph when we first uh, re-meet Toph. Which is great. She's just as crusty as you expect her to be when she's yeah. like a hundred or something. There's great parenting stuff in here with Toph as well. She was not a great parent. She was not. Um, okay, but before we get too much into that, um, I guess we'll just do what we normally do, introduce new characters, quick rundown of the season. In terms of new characters, there really are not any new characters. Um, Kuvira becomes a much bigger part of the show, and Batar Jr. becomes a much bigger part of the show. But there's really no one in this season who we haven't met before. And that they really just sort of like a lot of this season is mostly just sort of following the consequences of the last season. Uh, in particular, we've got the the Earth Kingdom government sort of falling apart and this huge power vacuum that is eventually f filled by Kuvira. So a lot of what we talk about will be political stuff that is sort of very prominent in this particular season. Um, it is very 
plot heavy, just like the last one, but the style is very, very different where we sort of move away from, I kind of like to think of it as the difference between like an old style JRPG and like a new style JRPG where like old style you and like a band of go-getters are going out and fighting like another band of evil go-getters. <laughs> and it's like very individual person power type stuff uh, where it's like you and other people clashing wills. And it's like all about that um, very intimate exchange of power. Whereas like this is very much um, people and systems are like up against people and other systems um, kind of stuff. Yeah. As opposed to. For sure. Uh, which also leads to there being less fighting. So there's less. Yeah, it is. It is bending light. Um, and and not to say that there isn't bending, but even when there is, it's like very set piece heavy. So like big, big things as opposed to again those like one on one or like small group bending battles. Yeah, the the battles are super different in this season because in season, especially in comparison with season three, where it was a lot of like insanely powerful individuals fighting each other. And in this situation, you have like armies now, um, which reminds me, you said uh, you mentioned the Earth Co- Kingdom government collapsing. There is actually one new character. It's Prince Wu. He's the uh, foppish party boy heir to the throne of the Earth Kingdom, um, who Mako is his is his bodyguard. Um, so I think when this season opens, it's three years after the events of season three, which is by far the longest gap between seasons we've ever had. The gap between seasons one and two was six months. And the gap between seasons two and three was six weeks. So the events of the first three seasons took place in the course of about a year and a half. And this is three years later, like just boom, three years later. And it's, it's fairly jarring because Team Avatar is sort of, they, they do the split up and then come back together thing that is so very common with stuff like this, where they each have to go off and, you know, Asami rebuilt her company. Korra is off recovering from her battle with Zaheer, or, or so we think. Uh, Mako is now working for the Earth King or the Earth Kingdom Prince. And Bolin joins up with the antagonist in Kuvira, who uh, ran off to go reunite the Earth Kingdom after it fell apart. And the three years is really, the three years I think is really there because it it's required to set up the antagonist for the, sh- for the season, which is Kuvira and her army. Mm-hmm. And because uh, otherwise, like, we wouldn't believe it if they had gone off and tried to conquer the Earth Kingdom in fucking a year or something. Like, that would have just yeah, been too unbelievable. Yeah, that would be way too difficult. So we've got a lot, like, a lot happening in the Earth King. Like, it's all Earth Kingdom-centric, naturally. And I, I think a good place to start is sort of just 
not so much summarizing, but outlining the political situation at the beginning of the, the, the season because so much stems from it. Uh, and we slowly are like, they pull back the curtain and show us kind of what has happened over these three years. And boy, let me tell you, it ain't good. Yeah. So basically what we find out as it happens, as as the first few episodes unfold, is that Cora has been away at the South Pole recuperating for three years. And so everyone's had to deal with the fallout of season three without her. Which means that Kuvira, the guard from the Metal Clan, has somehow ended up being the main person to take control of stabilizing the Earth Kingdom, which had basically collapsed after the assassination of the Earth Queen. Apparently, the line of succession wasn't super well planned out. And even though, you know, Zaheer and his crew were defeated rapidly after that assassination, we'd already seen that things were not good in the Earth Kingdom. And so after that assassination, things just kind of boiled over and it became uh, a failed state. So what Kuvira has been doing is sort of stabilizing everything, you know, getting rid of bandits, trying to create a better political situation. And... All of the other world leaders have supported her in this. Um, they th- they were like, great, Kavira is going to stabilize us. That's great. We should let her do it. She's promised to step down once things are stable. And the person who we've determined is the rightful heir is coronated. And so that is what's going to happen. And so when we open the season, that's what's going on. Cora's still gone. They're waiting to coronate Prince Wu and Kuvira is has a giant army and is on a dope train all the time that travels around the Earth Kingdom while she stabilizes it. Yeah, Varric has just like jumped ahead hundreds of years and just immediately develops freaking bullet train travel. Yeah, it's it's very cool. It's not like a like a steam train. It's like a mag magnetic train. It's very cool. I like early on, it splits into two stories where we've got big political story, which involves pretty much all of the characters except Cora. And then Cora is on her sort of personal adventure, um, which really sorts of split. It splits the show into two themes. Um, the big theme with Cora's journey is sort of uh, PTSD and trauma and coping and literal and physical manifestations, all the harm that has been done to her. So she has to um, figure out a way through that and struggles a lot to do that. And Mm -hmm. she just completely separates herself from everybody. And then the other is all this political stuff. And both, like both intertwine, obviously. But for a while, things are just sort of left to progress without Korra. Specifically, we already get a sense that um, it's really interesting because the show really portrays like we we trust Tenzin and and most of the other people who are trying to figure out shit for the Earth Kingdom, so to speak. But they are essentially propping up like a a, a monarchy that had failed the Earth Kingdom uh, for a while now. And we have, like, no faith in who 
they're putting on the throne. And so you are kind of at the beginning, you're kind of like, do they, is this really like a good idea? Like, mm -hmm. should they really be using all of their influence to prop up a monarchy, which really doesn't seem to have people's interests at heart? Um, and that's part of the reason why Boleyn in this, for like the first third of this season, is like against, <laughs> it's like on the other side. He works for Kavira and he really believes in what she's doing. Uh, bringing order and helping people and he's like the monarchy is blah like it's not really yeah. good for things yeah the the other world leaders are not only sort of propping up a failed monarchy which seems like it had not been functioning well for generations and certainly wouldn't function well under this guy they're not only propping that up but they're talking about they're like Oh, like the woman who's like running around the Earth Kingdom with an army and has been in charge of stabilizing everything for three years when there's been no government has promised that she's going to stop, like step down and not be in charge anymore once we say to. And if you know anything about history in the real world, you're just like, uh-huh, sure, that's how it's going to happen. The political situation is very Europe. It's very uh, interwar Europe. It's very 1920s Europe looking at Hitler. Yeah, and, and, and this is something like the, whereas like the first and the set, like there were World War One-ish tones to particularly the first season with like the biplanes and everything. This moves it into World War II um, because we start dealing with like Okay, robot tanks. I know they didn't have those. Um, no matter how much Wolfenstein says they would have, um, <laughs> but like we're dealing with super weapons and armies and fat and 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 like it. We're in World War II territory here, so we um, get the mystical version of a nuke. Basically, there's the spirit vine weapons, which are they don't say anything about radiation, but in terms of the power that they have, it's essentially a nuclear weapon. And um, to Ver, okay, so Varric is also very interesting in this. So, um, so Kuvira very early on makes it very obvious that she is not interested in turning over power. Um, and at first, like I don't know, at the beginning, it is kind of like clearly Wu is not capable of ruling a, a government and, and doing well. And so at the beginning, you're kind of like from a utilitarian perspective, you're like, well, she has done a lot of stuff. But you even then, you're already getting like a couple of warning signs. Like, number one, she says like really scary things about the Earth Kingdom in particular um, that sound incredible. Like they're incredibly nationalistic. So anybody who fucks with us is going to get fucked with really hard. Like classic, we're the best and we're going to protect our borders stuff. Yeah. And even at the point where she says, so the United Republic is on unceded Earth Kingdom territory, that at the end of the Hundred Year War that... Fire Lord Zuko and Avatar Aang took the 
fire colonies that were on Earth Kingdom territory and turned them into um, the United Republic. And she seems to think that they sort of duped the king at the time into doing it or didn't have permission. And on the one hand, you're like, well, that was Earth Kingdom territory. That's true. However, your thoughts about what you should now do about what you say was Earth Kingdom territory and is now its own country um, don't aren't aren't great. That's not a great way to handle this situation. At that point, we'd also seen um, the way that she unites the states that were that split off. Um, she shows up to desperate people and she says, "Cede all power to me. You will listen to me." I will take your resources and you will do as I say, or you will get attacked by raiders that we find out are under her orders. So we already know that she's like playing like. Wait, real quick. Are the raiders literally under her orders or is it just sort of like, oh, yes, it's convenient for her? Well, because she captures some raiders who try to attract her chain and she tells them, like, join her. And the implication is that she's the one encouraging people to attack states that don't give over power to her. Oh, I didn't read it that way. I just kind of thought she was doing um, forced conscription into her uh, into her regular troops. I mean, that I, she would like basically catch bandits and basically say, "I will let you like get run over by a train or starve to death, like trapped here." Or you can join my army and be a soldier. That, that like, was my reading of it. I think both readings of it are valid. <laughs> I'm not sure which one. Like, I don't know what authorial intent was. Um, very, very true. And it's like, I doubt all the raiders were under her control. But it sure. seems very much like she's setting up a position where the like the states can't refuse her. Yes, and absolutely. Something that's really cool is that the Air Nation is now trying to like be the Red Cross, where they like show up and try to help people and provide humanitarian aid, but there like aren't that many of them, and it's very hard for them to do that. They so, have dope little like flying squirrel suits, though. They're really cool. I mean, they're basically Switzerland in terms of neutral. Like they're not fighting anybody, but they're trying to. Um, you know, do the do the humanitarian aid thing. And yeah, and they will fight people who are obviously like outlaws, you know, and if they're able to. So we get like we see that Kuviri is manipulative. She's dictatorial. She is nationalistic. She focuses all of her like a lot of her effort on technological advancement and warfare. So by now. All of those things should start to sound very familiar. (laughs) I wonder where I've seen that happen before. Exactly. Like, it couldn't be... It couldn't be more clear that the political ideology that's being portrayed in this season is fascism. Like, at one point, she takes over a city and makes them hang up, like, a giant banner of her face on a building. Like, you can't get more fash than that. So uh, would you like to describe fascism for people who are not quite sure what the main components are? 
Sure. Fascism is a right-wing ideology that was originally born in Italy during the 1920s under the leadership of Mussolini. That's right. Mussolini is the one who invented it. He wasn't just second banana to Hitler. Um, and it's essentially... The best way to explain it is, okay, so there's a reason the Nazis were called national socialists. They called themselves that not just to try and fool people into thinking they were a socialist party, but because the idea is it's like socialism for the very narrowly and rigidly defined in-group. So there is a high degree of interaction between the government and corporations. It's a highly militarist society. It's highly focused on propaganda. But it provides a good standard of living for a very narrowly defined in-group of people at the expense of creating an intense in-out sort of situation and depriving all the people who don't fit into the in-group of basically everything. Yeah, so uh, militaristic, nationalistic, authoritarian. Yes, yeah. And also always like weirdly homoerotic. They don't show that <laughs> in this show, but that's always part of fascism. Um so and and Kuvier is sort of very much meant to look like like a like a Hitler lookalike. They even do a freaking uh, appeasement bit between the unite like the United Governments and her. So basically, um People like Kavir has refused to step down. And so the world leaders are talking about what to do about it. And they're just like, well, she hasn't attacked us. So we're just not going to do anything about that. Like once she takes over all of the Earth Kingdom and refuses to relinquish her individual control, she'll definitely be satisfied with that and won't like continue to attack other people. And that's definitely, that definitely will work, guys, because it's worked before, right? Um, no, that that's like, that happened during World War II, you know, uh, people were like, oh, Hitler's going to take what he wants. And then just like, we're, we're just like, hey, let him have it. Let him have it. Um, who cares if he takes a little bit of Poland? You know, he's not going to, he's not going to do anything about France, or something. Um, <laughs> so that happened. It's like a very interesting historical parallel. Um, we also at one point even find out that she's has concentration camp. Like, so she has um, re-education. re-education camps, which have been part of a lot of different totalitarian regimes, like essentially prison camps, labor camps where um, dissidents are sent. But it also becomes apparent that she has literal concentration camps because she's doing ethnic cleansing she is rounding up everyone not of earth kingdom origin and putting them in camps and we're not sure what the end intention is with that but it certainly seems that she is trying to uh go on a large-scale ethnic cleansing campaign in the earth kingdom and it's it's really implied that should like should her vision come to pass like she she's another hundred year war just like waiting to happen. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, like she's also going to try to take over the world essentially. Um, it it you you, uh, you just feel it in your bones, 
And like everything she does is for safety and stability, which is like, <laughs> be wary of like anybody who's just like, no, no, no. Everything I'm doing is for stability. Um, yeah. Like she keeps saying that she, she wants to help people. And that's why, um, Bolin is just like a hopelessly naive rube and he just never pays attention to what's going on, never asks any questions. He just wants to help people and she says that she's helping people so he figures that's what she's doing and he should like go along with it. Eventually. Bolin, buddy. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, the turning point eventually is when like Kavir goes to attack like Su Yin and and um, the entire Metal Bender clan because they won't submit, and and he's like, wait, do we really need to do this? And also, there's like a moment where Varric accidentally discovers the spirit weapon ability, and he's like, I'm not gonna make this because even I am like, whoa, nobody should be able to do that. I'm and not going to create a weapon of mass destruction. And Kuvira is like, no, you need to do this. So, like, finally, both of them are like, yo, she crazy. <laughs> yeah, she goes fully mask off and, like, threatens to put them in re-education camps and shit. Um, it, like, it's it's fucked up. And, and like, <laughs> Julie betrays them both, you know. But then it turns out Julie was working as a double agent. Julie gets a lot of, like, good, good shit this season. Event, like, Cora shows up after things have already like steamrolled too far. Um, and eventually like she does with the help of her friends manage to, to, to intervene. Um, so how she gets there is particularly interesting because like we go from macro to micro um, back and forth. So up to let's say the point where, Kavira has refused to relinquish power. She's investigating the spirit weapon. Bolin and Varric have ran away, and they're outside of the the metal city. Shit, I forget. Zalfu. Zalfu. Um, Kor shows up. So up to that point, um, Kor has been having a hard time because of all the terrible things that have been done to her. Um, yes. <laughs> she had a year and a half, 18 months straight of just Horrific trauma. Um, between having her bending stolen, having Rava torn out of her, Zaheer uh, really poisoning her and then just like almost killing her. Finally, sort of all of this stuff starts to build up. Mix that with a little bit of physical poisoning that won't go away. And you've got a person who just feels like she's constantly fighting and being traumatized. And she just, she goes to like underground earthbending fights and she does the, you know, the cut your hair, go live a gritty lifestyle. Like it's implied that she's like beating herself up, um, essentially kind of thing that you sometimes will see in media with people who have just like been shat on a ton. And eventually like she's followed by the literal specter of herself. So it's like very palpable PTSD stuff happening to her. Yeah. She keeps seeing a vision of 
herself in the Avatar state with the chain wrapped around her wrist, um, which is how she was portrayed during her battle with Zaheer. So it's like, it's also like in her day-to-day life, sort of her waking nightmare isn't even Zaheer. It's, it's herself. It's herself when she has no control. And I mean, that's like the portrayal is very good. Like, I think it's, it's interesting that uh, a show that is still ostensibly for teenagers um, shows like a very clear depiction of post-traumatic stress. And I think that they do it pretty well. They add the, you know, the mystical avatar component, but she's having flashbacks. Um, she's clearly angry and depressed and she's afraid that she's like, they do a really good job of portraying that. She's like afraid that not like she'll never be herself again. She'll never be powerful again. Um, which are thoughts that a lot of people who experience this kind of stuff go through on a daily basis, that they're sort of never going to be themselves again. And uh, it's, it's really convincing. Like they do an incredibly good job of going through this really, really difficult psychological topic. And I mean, Cora's a soldier too. Like she's fought for years and it's in a way it's nice to see that she like sometimes heroes are always portrayed as being people that they just sort of like like they have like unparalleled resiliency which yeah you're gonna have those people but it's also at some point you're like this person has been constantly traumatized like is it really not affecting them at all um and it's sort of nice to see them try to deal with that issue And I think they deal with it really well because they also, you know, they show her really struggling with the physical aspects, like learning to walk again, and then also struggling with the emotional. And then when she meets Toph, she brings it back around to Toph says, well, you still have poison inside of you. You have tiny little bits of of metal in there, um, and that will help you like physically if you get it out. But then you get we get into this kind of loop where her emotional state is helping her is stopping her from actually getting it out. And then when she finally does, she realizes she's still she still hasn't healed. She still has problems, even though she was like, great, I finally figured out what's holding me back. It's the tiny little bits of poison that are still inside me. And once I get them out, I'll be all better. But she's not because even though that helps, she's still it will take a lifetime probably to heal from everything that she's been through. So she, she leaves Toph in the swamp after having the mercury removed from her and she goes to fight Kavira and Kavira in front of Zalfu and she gets her ass kicked. Um, Cause her head is just not in the game. And she, she realizes that she really hasn't um, gotten, gotten better enough to kind of, just face this thing. I mean, Kavira is one hell of a bender. So she's not, you know, she's not anything to sort of shake a stick at. And she, mm-hmm. she gets rescued and they manage to run away. And a very interesting progression of Korra dealing with her psychological problems is facing her attacker. Yes. I was about to ask you, what do you think about that? Um, so for those of you, she goes to see Zaheer and why the fuck they haven't executed him is beyond me. Um, do they just like not do execution in Avatar world or like? 
Yeah, like they can show Zaheer fucking assassinating a, a, a queen, but they can't show him being... They can't even just say, you know, he was executed. Mm-hmm. Clearly their priorities are, are, are fucky. But she goes to the prison to face Zaheer and, and she, she gets him to help by saying your revolutionary action left a power vacuum that made Kuvira, which is another interesting point that I think deserves talking about. But. And he, at the time he says he wants to help her because the Kuvira is the most abhorrent thing to him and defeating Kuvira is a place where they align. But something I do feel weird about is they, they talk. So Zaheer really is like a spiritual person. Like he's a bit of a guru so he like guides her into the spirit world and essentially tells her the same thing that like Katara and Toph had both told her when she started to panic about her fight with Zaheer. Like that fight is over. Let go of the fear. Um, that's what Toph said. He said, um, you know, that's in the past. Accept what happened to you. Right. And on the one hand, you're like, those are those are good things that she needed to hear. But also like. He's the person who did that to her. I feel very weird about, like, I don't know how to feel about that whole sequence. Um, I think part of it is she needed to see him in chains. Yeah. Like, she needed to see that he was truly well entrapped. And I can understand why that helped. But, like, the whole bit about him guiding her into the spirit world and telling her, like, accept what happened to you... It's one thing to be like confronting the person who traumatized you can sometimes in certain situations help with your healing journey. Like you don't have to forgive them, but like confronting them can sometimes help. But then literally he like gave her advice and took her on a journey that helped her to heal. And it's like, I don't really, that's like kind of, that's kind of weird, isn't it? I think so. I think this is where the parallel doesn't fit. Like if it had been something more like more violating, it probably would have been even worse. Um, I don't know why. Like you'd think like I feel like emotionally attending to kill somebody should be like a worse violation than other possible things. But it but it almost kind of doesn't. (laughs) I don't know. Like, I, yeah. Like, I don't know. Somebody trying to kill somebody and somebody doing something more violating. Mm hmm. Like, I feel like that's the only way it works. Because, yeah. Like, or or it, maybe, like, because, like, Zaheer trying to kill Korra was never, never a personal thing. It all had everything to do with, like, his beliefs. And it's not like he was trying to cause Cora pain just for like the sake of it or whatever, you know, he wasn't trying to kill her because it brought him pleasure to do it. But I I still, it still just makes me feel weird because I'm like, "Ah, what, what's the message here? I don't know. (laughs) I don't don't know know what I'm supposed to draw from this. I don't know if there is a message. It, It felt like, I think it works a little bit more because it was really about Cora and not about him. That's true, yeah. Like they didn't they didn't do anything to try you like 
feel better about him or see him as redeeming himself. Like none of it was really focused on, hey, Zaheer is, you know, he's not such a bad guy. It was yeah, all and about, I guess it's like it was all about Cora finding, doing it, her like her doing it, albeit with his spiritual mm-hmm. knowledge. Yeah, and I guess it's like sort of who's the most Zen character alive in the you know like in the Avatar universe right now? Who is the most knowledgeable about letting go of emotions? And it would be Zaheer, you know? Yeah. So I think I think that they they wanted to be like, listen, Cora, this person who killed you is going to try and help you. And maybe that can help you sort of move past it. Not forgive, but to sort of like find your power. It's, I do like that like, it is she, does, she explicitly does not forgive him. Even after he helps her, she's still like, like, I don't forgive you. I can... I can let go of the fear. I can accept what happened, but I cannot forgive you. Yeah, I think that's important too. And I, and I think that 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 last part is probably why I didn't feel weird about it. Yeah, yeah, that helps. That helps a lot. Um, it's one of two sort of relationship things in this season that I'm like, I just don't know. This is very complicated. Um, and we'll talk about the other one in a little while. Um, but I think also another important thing about this is that even when she confronts the hearer and says she, you know, she accepts what happens to her, she lets go of the fear. She she's doing a lot better after that, but it's still very clear. It's like she's not fixed She's not back to normal. She's not who she was before any of this happened. And in fact, she probably never will be that person ever again. She's just further along in her healing journey. Um, so things really start to... Things start to really pick up after Zalfu is conquered by Kuvira. Um Lynn's sister and her sister's family, they're all captured by Kuvira. Kuvira makes a giant spirit cannon. Uh, um, Bolin and Varric are on the run trying to escape. There's like a lot happening and, and really what everything sort of culminates with Kuvira gets a bunch of spirit vines and she she is going to attack Republic City. And everybody gathers once again at Republic City. And this is where like the set piece of set pieces occurs. Um, because it turns out somehow Kuvira builds a giant robot just an absolutely fucking enormous mecha made of platinum even the joints are platinum with the giant spirit gun on the arm it's like a wrist cannon and it's it's bigger than a skyscraper it's truly truly absurd so 
everybody rushes back to get the army ready and Kuvir shows up early and basically the last couple of episodes are them trying to figure out a way to fight the giant robot and Kuvir is slowly betraying everybody. Yeah, basically like Batar Jr. was her was her boo the whole season and there was a big rift in Suyin's family because of it. And basically Kuvira just like tried to kill him. He had been captured. He was going to get, you know, ransomed basically. She found out where he was and blew it up. She was going to kill him to kill everybody else that was standing in her way. And so he's like, Oh, holy shit. Like, I've been so blind this whole time. Like, she's not who I thought she was, you know, and all of that mess. It's so it gets to the point where, like, literally nobody is on her side anymore except her foot soldiers. Um, so an, an amazing battle ensues. Um, everybody manages to pull out some bullshit. The robot is defeated. Hooray. I mean, there's not much for me to say about it other than they really put in a lot of work uh, yeah. into um, the set. Asami's dad redeems himself by uh, sacrificing his life to help defeat it. Um, they, let's see, and after they defeat the giant robot, uh, Korra <laughs> has to chase Kavira into the spirit wilds where she essentially like hooks up her cannon to an unlimited source of spirit vine power. And then it just goes completely haywire and ends up ripping open a new spirit portal right there in the middle of Republic city. So that happens. And after everything is said and done, Kuvira is arrested. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> and what they say is she's just like, Oh my God. She's essentially like, Oh my God, what have I done? Oh my God. And then Sue Yin's like, yeah, what the fuck bitch. And she's like, I'm really sorry for all the pain I caused your family. And Sue Yin is like, we're going to make sure you're held accountable for your crimes. I'm like, I mean, I guess like we'd have like a Nuremberg trial. <laughs> yeah. The, I'm sorry. The only account for that is execution. Yeah, like, I'm, like, anti-death penalty, but, like, for the things that she did, like, I don't really know, like, what else you can do, like, to hold someone to account for that. Like, you know, like, I don't know, we put people in prison for their entire lives for killing one person. And and she has, like, consistently caused massive amounts of human suffering. Yeah, on, like, on a massive, massive scale. Like, a scale... Now, she didn't do a successful genocide like the Fire Nation did, but that was definitely in the cards, you know? And she she was causing human suffering, like, minus that one thing, she was causing human suffering on the scale that the Fire Nation did during the Hundred Year War. So, so that feels very unsatisfying, because it's super unsatisfying. They, they're just like, oh, no, what did I do? Like people, people who go that far don't turn around very easily. And and she turns around in like a minute because Cora saves her life. 
Like this Yeah, and Korra's all like, oh, we're kind of alike and like I understand you now and blah blah blah. And that like really disappointed me because it's like they sort of put they're like, we need Korra to finish developing and become like an understanding and caring person. And so I guess like that means that also Kuvira has to be remorseful. But like we know the writers have done a better job with this before. Look at the way that Azula ended. Yeah, going crazy and ended up in prison. Yeah, so that's part of the reason I'm so disappointed in the way that they ended with Kuvira is because it seemed like it almost seems like they're like, well, we can't have a villain and the series just like completely losing her mind again, even though it really seemed like that's where it was going with the with the spirit cannon and everything. And I was it, I just find it disappointing because it's really lackluster. I don't think it's realistic. And I know that the writers are capable of a lot better. Yeah. For all the political stuff that they did, this is how they choose to end it. it, 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 it sorry, guys. It, it's lazy. Yeah, it's sort of like, and like, why, why the fascist of all the different villains? Like, are, are we going to show as being like human and capable of remorse? Because like, Amon, not sorry at all, ends up dying in a fiery boat crash. Unalak, not sorry at all, ends up disappearing into the spirit world or something during like a spirit battle. Zaheer, not sorry at all, ends up in prison forever, like still doesn't denounce his ideology even to this day. So, like, why? And, like, a lot of those were, like, like, those, the first three were, I think, a lot more sympathetic, like, ideologies than Kavira's, which, like, because I have more sympathy for, like, anarchism and spiritualism and, like, radical democracy than I do for fascism. So, like, why in the hell is the villain we decide, like, well, let's let her be sorry and show, like, remorse and be a real human being and not go to sort of not see her be unraveled and undone by, like, the excesses of her ideology and quest for power. Like, why that one? Okay, question. Do you think her being a woman had anything to do with it? I was just thinking that, actually. That might have something to do with it. In a way that doesn't make it any better, it actually makes it worse. <laughs> well, no, no, and I don't even like it, it. The rest of her portrayal in the in the season doesn't really make me think that that was a huge factor. But right at the very end, they just couldn't. Like maybe maybe that's like a small contributing factor, like unconsciously even. Like I don't think <laughs> they were sitting around saying, "Oh, she's a woman, we have to let her go." Um, but it still seems like maybe that entered into the equation. Yeah, definitely. I think that in the way that at the end of The Last Airbender, they kind of choked on the way that it ended for Ozai and let us down a little bit. They also choked with the way that it ended for Kavira and let us down a little bit. Yes, I, yeah, I agree. I, it's like, and it stands out so, so much because they do it well with the others. Like Yes, double, exactly. That's what double makes it so murder, disappointing. Double murder, suicide. Come on. Yeah. Like you can't, you can't pull something. <laughs> like, and maybe at that point they were just like, we got to get it done. Yeah. I mean, at the very least you could have her still being like, like Cora having her moment of growth and trying to talk to Kavira and Kavira being like, no, like, 
I am the great uniter. The Earth Empire will reign for a thousand years, you know. And like as she's getting hauled away in cuffs, just sort of like ranting and raving. And to me, that would be better. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Yeah, and a um, couple of other notes. Uh, number one, Varric. So mm. our, 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 our capitalist inventor goes good in this one. Um, he himself states that he grows a conscience and it's annoying because he refuses. His, he draws the line at weapons of mass destruction. Which, at least there's a line, right? Yeah. And the situation with him and Julie is interesting because basically after she does the double agent thing, he come, she comes back and is like, I'm sorry that I caused you pain. That was like the only way that I thought that I could save you. And then he just starts to, even though he was missing her horribly the whole time they were apart, he just talks to her exactly like he always did. And she, you know, demands that he treat her as an equal and she'll come to work with him as a partner, but not as his assistant and blah, blah, blah. And he comes to the realization that he took her for granted. And then actually he's in love with her and it turns out that she's in love with him too. And, uh, they get married and it's, that's another one that makes me feel weird because it's like really cute and satisfying in a certain way. Um, because it's like, oh, the only person who can like put up with them, you know, and it's like, and he finally values her or whatever. And everyone else is always like, good Lord, Julie, like put up with so much bullshit from you. But like, on the other hand, I'm like, I don't know. Like, he's like, he treats her very, 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 very poorly. Like I'm on the fence about whether or not I would say his treatment of Julie is downright abusive, but it's very bad and like I don't know that's another one that I feel weird about it's like what is the message here that like you know if you let someone treat you like shit for long enough and then just assert yourself one time they'll like get the picture and start treating you nicely and like love you you know and like you'll have like a happy relationship like that is that's not true yeah that is very weird <laughs> um I think they thought it would be cute and they just sort of, like, overlooked the previous stuff. Yeah, it's, like, it's it's really cute. And at first I'm, like, aw, but if you, you know, like, aw. But if you think about it for literally ten seconds, it's just, like, Jesus Christ, Julie, don't do this. Yeah, I I agree that I, I fell into the trap where I thought it was very cute. But it is very problematic. Yes, definitely. Cute, but really problematic. Um, Lin and Suyin and Toph all managed to come to an understanding about the fact that Toph says something really sad. She says, I think if you could just not hate me, I would be happy. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, God. Yeah. But here's the thing. Toph was a bad mom. Yeah. And it's not surprising because she does not have the personality to be a good mom, especially not a single mom. And that's what she was. And she fucked up her kids. And and there there is a very powerful moment where Lynn doesn't know who her father is. And Toph treats it as if it's trivial 
And Lynn has absolutely the entire right to be angry about that. Yeah, it's like Bolin's like, by the way, who's Toph's dad? And Toph's like, oh, he was like a guy named Kanto. He was nice, but it didn't work out between us. And then Lynn freaks the fuck out because apparently Toph's never even told her that much. So and she's like, Lynn's like 50. I think like Toph never really grew up. No, she's still exactly the same person she was at 10 years old. And I and I think this is a classic don't meet your heroes. Yeah, I mean, definitely. Like, she's mean. Like, Toph was, like, mean and cranky and grouchy and shitty when she was 10. And she's the exact same way when she's an old person. And she's still, like, in a way wise and very powerful. But she's not very nice. And she wasn't nice to her kids either. Motherhood did not soften her. No, and and I think like Toph had a lot of hard stuff, but I I think it, it's really not enough to it's really not enough to make up for her failures, and I and I think the worst part is that she treats it like it's not really a failure. Like she says that she knows she's not a good mom, but that's not enough. Like it's yeah, not you have to like just actually to like it. apologize or try at all. And and even at the time, like you can tell that like she's smart enough. If she put in the effort, she could have done something about it. But she didn't because she's tough and she's tough and she doesn't really care what other people think. And when you're an adult with children, that is not a virtue at all. That is mm-hmm. shitty. Yes. Yes. Because to a certain extent, what your children think matters in the sense that, like, you're giving them, like, a loving and supportive environment to grow up in, which she didn't, you know, Um, which is like it's like it's one of those things where you're like, that's really sad, but also like zero percent surprised. It follows perfectly well with her character. Well, and it, and it is very classic. Um, so parenting styles research shows that individuals like oftentimes have a style um, that differs in the like the amount of control they exert over their children's lives. Um, and oftentimes something that you'll see is that people with authoritarian parents, parents that like tried to exert a lot of control on them, when they have kids, they go the other way. So they swing into what is called permissive parenting, where mm-hmm. they... They just sort of like they don't really set boundaries for their kids or they may even be uninvolved in a lot of their kids decisions. They exert like little to no control because they don't want their kids to feel the same way that they did about their parents. Um, That's not great. Like, no, it's she did exactly that because it's weird because even though she's like mean and grumpy she was just completely disengaged as a parent. You know, she was super laissez-faire. And ultimately, like, her daughters really had to fend for themselves. Um, And they each coped, like, very differently. Lynn tried to get her mom to stop being permissive by following in her footsteps. Sort of Mm -hmm. like, uh, you care about this stuff, so if I do it, you will care about me. Because I'm related to this thing that you care about. Whereas Su Yen was very much like, I'm going to go, well, 
and she was forced to go figure out her own shit. Um, yes. So, but no, okay, so it's finally time. Do you want to hear my Toph headcanon? Okay. Okay, so throughout the series of Korra, we know that Sokka has already died. Suki is never once mentioned, and no children of Sokka's are ever mentioned, ever. And you can assume that if he had them, we probably would have met them at some point because nobody mentions a big family falling out. We find out now that Lynn and Sue have different dads and that Lynn's dad was a guy named Kanto, but they never mention who Sue's dad was. And so I think that it was Sokka. Interesting. Why? Yes. Well, because I always thought... Through, throughout the series of The Last Airbender, the age difference between Toph and Sokka was far too great. But in absolute terms, it's not a very big age difference. And I always thought they had a lot of chemistry. And there was a certain point at which, like, Toph clearly really liked Sokka. So I kind of always thought that if things didn't work out between Sokka and Suki, or maybe even if they did, that when they got older, maybe they might have something go down and that might explain why nice guy not so bad with the lady Sokka apparently never had a family it's that he did have a family and it was with Toph and it didn't work out so nobody ever really talks about it interesting I wish we knew now I know right I want to interrogate them yeah, get the authorial intent. Um, other things to note about this season. Um, they do a big bit about how, like, the Earth is connected. Like, they, we, we, the Banyan Grove tree is introduced and we, you know, get to understand, like, wow, everything is connected. Um, kind of stuff. Time is an illusion, and so is death. <laughs> we get to a see repeat the, of that. We get to see the Airbender kids grow up, and the teenagers fight with each other, which is always fun. Yeah, I really like the the like mature, you know, maturing of the Airbender kids. It's it's really cool because. Jinora is very, you know, independent. Iki has calmed down. But Milo is still like, he's super crazy, but because he's still like nine, but he's becoming like really competent in addition to being super crazy in a way that's touching to watch. Like he saves his dad's life at one point. Yeah, we get, we, I don't know. I still, we get a classic first child, second child, third child thing. <laughs> Iki is very middle child like always feeling left out mad at the first child and the younger child for stealing her thunder like there, there's just a whole bunch of birth order stuff going on there mm-hmm, absolutely and Janor is always like this is I you know I'm put together and this is the status quo and this is good <laughs> which is like a very first child thing to do as a first child, yes. <laughs> yep. It's 
it's on the books. Yes, all us firstborns are very anxious and conscientious. Which is weird because it's like they're supposed to be very much for the rules and like both of us are very much like fuck the rules right now. <laughs> um, so obviously there's a lot more there's it's a lot more complicated than that. But within the family structure, first children are generally much more OK with the way that things are. Yeah, it's sort of like the way I always feel about the rules. It's like, well, is there like is there a good reason for the rule? It sounds like there's a good reason for that rule, so I don't really know why it would be a problem. If there's not a good reason for it, we should change the rule. <laughs> yeah, whereas, like, youngest children are usually just like, fuck the rules. <laughs> the um, rules are there to keep you safe. <laughs> but the rules are, like, the rules benefit the older children. So, like, <laughs> I need them gone. <laughs> Yeah, I think um, there's also a lot of great, like, great relationship stuff as people's relationships come, become more mature. Like, Mako just isn't dating anybody. For the last two seasons, he's lady-free, and he talks about how he needed to come to terms with himself and who he is without a woman in his life and who he wants to be and what he actually wants. And it seems like it's been good for him because he's like less shitty um and bolin gets into a lot of conflict with opal because he's siding with kuvira and opal's like you are dumb she is evil and she's hurting me and my family and you are dumb and he's like but we're helping people and halfway through the seasons he's like oh wait no she was right i'm dumb i'm i'm very 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 dumb and everyone in the audience is like Yes, that's true. And I mean, eventually they resolve because Bolin puts in the effort. But, you know, it's yeah. like politics drives people apart and that's the way it is. Yeah, and it's like it's like even though Bolin was being stupid and naive, like I don't think he was ever being like a bad boyfriend. Like there's nothing wrong in principle with like believing in something and standing up for what you believe in even if it make like you know, even if the partner that you're with like doesn't approve he was wrong <laughs> like he was <laughs> completely wrong about what he believed in but there's nothing wrong in principle with believing in something yeah um and the biggest relationship reveal at the very end of the series Cora Asami is that Cora and Asami step into the spirit portal to go exploring and they're holding hands and they're staring Ooh. lovingly into their each other's eyes lesbians and they form Actually, a bi. classic they form a classic butch lipstick combo. Oh my god, yeah, because Cora also has the bisexual bob. We love it. We love to see it. But it's not, it is the quintessential always bisexual female haircut. Yes, absolutely. We've got Cora with it. We've got Marceline with it. <laughs> it's it's classic and if you you can't deny it because it is simply true. Um, is, I myself have had many a bob. It is a fact of life. Just if like Cora the were whole, jeans, she'd cuff them. Just like the whole shaving the sides of your head but leaving your top long is like a super gay haircut. The 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 bob is bisexual all the way. Yes, it is. Cora's a bicon. 
she has the bye bob and skinny skinny jeans are a bisexual dude thing (laughs) i'm telling you cuffed jeans are a bisexual woman thing if Korga wore jeans she would cuff them as we all remember elisa maza was a bi style icon with her cuffed jeans and her booties and her bomber jacket (laughs) (laughs) yes yeah but there are some people even to this day who are like all mad about Korosami. They're like, blah, blah, blah. That came out of nowhere. They just wanted to be PC. Blah, blah. Or whatever. And I'm like, mm, no, it didn't. It definitely didn't come out of nowhere. Well, well, they were so, definitely, definitely setting it up for at least the whole season. Absolutely. So Almost they, almost assuredly setting it up since the beginning of season three. And you could even make the argument they were setting it up for the entire series. Yeah. So I think like it's very... I noticed this, especially as we were watching through. There are a lot of very private, intimate moments between these two shown on screen. And Cora, yes. Cora, the only person Cora wrote to while she was off trying to heal was Asami. Mm-hmm. And everybody discovers that and they're like, what the fuck? But she feels like she can only talk to Asami. And I think like that's that right that like you you really have to be not exposed to relationships to see that is like that that connection forming yeah definitely it's like i think they're very clearly showing a connection between that that a connection exists between them in all through season four you know like asami's always there like looking after their being there for and she's like oh i brought you a cup of tea like are you doing okay do you want to talk about it and cora will talk to her when she won't talk to anybody else like she you know, wants to to spend time with Asami. She feels safe with her. I think that they are, from the beginning of season three, they're spending more and more time one-on-one with each other, you know, um, sharing more intimate moments, going on adventures together, uh, developing that connection. I think it's, they're certainly showing that throughout season three with the Korra Asami solo adventures. And I could even argue that from the beginning of the series, you know, the whole way that Cora thinks that she's not going to like Asami at first, but then actually thinks that she's really cool after getting to know her. Or she refers to her as a prissy, beautiful, elegant, rich girl <laughs> or like, or like all these different things. Like, I think that that connection is there and growing from the very beginning. And, and ultimately I think if you showed like a child that final shot and ask them if they like, like each other, the kid would be like, Oh yeah, they totally do. Like, I think Mm -hmm. any, any, any person with that sort of like those preconceived notions about sexual orientation would be like, Oh yeah, they, I think they definitely like each other. Um, Mm -hmm. So it's like, if a kid could see it, it's like adults have no right to argue against it unless they have some problem with queer relationships on TV. And then they get all flustered and they're like, well, I don't have, I don't have a problem with it, but why do they have to show it? Um, At which point, you know that they've lost and their opinion no longer matters. Yeah, exactly. And like all the people who are saying like, it came out of nowhere. Like, as I was just explaining, you just weren't paying attention yeah, you they, just like assume that like that connection between women can never be romantic. And so even though they were showing you that intimate connection building, you refused to see it. Yeah, just it, they, I, you know, just confirmation bias, bro. Yeah. Anyway, we stand like we love Korasami. I think it's great. 
I was also it was groundbreaking, groundbreaking in television animation. Even though it was um, online, a lot of people saw it. Yes, definitely. I mean, even Rebecca Sugar and her team have said that, you know, they could only do stronger than you because of earlier that year, the finale of Korra and how well that went over and how like cool everybody was about it, you know? So Dan, like this, it, this is a big moment. We can mark historical moments in the show and this is a, in, in like our podcast. And this is an official Animates historical artifact. Yes. Korosami historical moment in animation. And that it was a great way to end. I think that did for me, that definitely redeems failing to do a good thing with Kuvira. Yeah, me too. I agree. I agree. Just being like, oh, Cora and Cora and Asami are going to go like heal from trauma together and just like hang out and probably kiss and stuff. <laughs> yeah. And then get all. It's going to be cute. It's going to be cute. Um, <laughs> it's gonna be so cute the spirits are gonna watch them fuck oh that's not cute <laughs> <laughs> what human Don't being, be gross. human beings are animals <laughs> we're designed to sex each other there are lots of like really cute childlike spirits in this season don't say that <laughs> and they're gonna learn what a vulva is no stop <laughs> <laughs> you can't escape it um, uh, fine. <laughs> don't don't hate me because I'm right. Oh man. Um, but yeah, I mean, like, so that's essentially what they do with this is they they like wrap up. They sort of say, okay, the arc of this series was Korra going from being a teenager to an adult avatar in a modernizing world that presents really different challenges than any other avatar has had to deal with. And it's how she learns to mature, to find balance, and to be a more compassionate and thoughtful person. And so they tie up all the strings that were related to that while simultaneously being like, but also she's like 19 years old, 20 years old. So, you know, the world is very, very different now than it was <laughs> when Aang was alive. And, there's going to be still a lot of things happening and changing and a lot more for Korra to experience. My recommendation, if they ever do another show, is that they need to show the Avatar becoming irrelevant in a modern world. Yeah, I mean, yes, I think that they should. I think Imagine they should show like, the next Avatar after Korra. Like you computers know? and mil like billions of people and just like guns. Where are all the guns? Like, you show a gun, and I guarantee you the avatar becomes irrelevant. Um, so I think it would be really cool and really sad and really complicated, say, a Netflix show, where you show, like, the avatar is fighting for relevancy in a world where people are losing reverence for all sorts of old things. Yeah, I think that would be... Great and very challenging to write. I do too. I think I think it would have to be a show for adults. Yes, I, it, definitely. I, it, cannot, like, it cannot be for kids. We've got to get like a seinen avatar series. <laughs> well, and just like 
all those fucking movies about like a drunk PI out on his luck in a grungy city. Just do like oh, that. Oh, it could be like a, um, a neo-noir. Just do that, but with the Avatar. Yes, definitely. That would be so good. Oh, it would be so should, good. We should pitch a neo-noir Avatar. <laughs> and, and, then, and then they could do a fourth series about space travel. Uh, Cowboy Bebop, but uh, Avatar. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that would be great. I, there's so much room for this IP to go that it's a sad, sad thing if it were just to die. Yeah, I really hope they, like, it's such a rich seam of IP. I hope that they um, do neat things with it and don't let, like, some company like fucking Disney, like, shit all over it. Make it terrible. Throne shade at Disney. This will be our like, last show, guys. And then we're going to get taken off the air. <laughs> um, but, um, so this wraps up, like, everything Avatar. And yeah, this very is sad. all of the Avatar animation that we have. I mean, I don't know. Like, maybe if we read all the comics, we could do, like, a Patreon episode talking about some of the comics or stuff. But, like, this is all of the television content we have. <laughs> it's so sad. I know. Please. But please. Demartino and Karietsko. Make us some more. I will. I will do unspeakably pleasurable things for you, <laughs> like make you a pecan pie. <laughs> Delicious. Get your mind out of the gutters. Though, <laughs> if it gets me a neo noir avatar, you know, willing to do just about anything. <laughs> just about anything. Um, oh man! But yeah, like just. As I've said with every season of this show, as I said with Avatar The Lost Airbender, it's truly beautiful. One of the best Western television animations ever made. Like, beautiful animation, incredible writing, great voice performances. You know, like, occasionally the writing will let you down a little bit, but never so much that it's not worth it. Like, it's repeated viewings of any avatar animation are super worth it. For those of you who are interested where we're headed next, we are going to record a special Patreon only episode for our loyal supporters. Thank you very much. And after that, we are going to begin our third season. Whoop. The animation whoop. Renaissance season, which, uh, is going to be exciting. We're going to be talking about all those shows we love to not talk about because we were saving it for now. Yes. Um, yes. <laughs> we're talking Adventure Time. We're talking Steven Universe. We're talking Gravity Falls. We're talking Regular Show. We're talking Misadventures of Flapjack. We're talking a third example. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so, and I mean, really you, 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 you see like a nice, it's nice because it was like a very strong historical, like show to show to show. So, mm -hmm. um, there'll be like a nice little story to tell about all of these people pretty much working on flapjack and then on adventure time and then on like anything else. Yeah, pretty much. Except for gravity falls. It's over there sort of in its own like special bubble. Yeah, basically. <laughs> because because it's great. I mean, like, Alex Hirsch did work on Flapjack, but, like, he doesn't have crosstalk. Like, because he went to Disney instead of staying with Cartoon Network, like, his crosstalk kind of ends there. 
So that's where we'll start. Um, <laughs> and, and I'm so into it. Yes, we're super excited to bring you season three. And we are a hope that you are also excited about it. Gay alien gemstones. Yes. There you go. Yeah, but I think that's about all we've got for this week. Um, I have been Chris. I've been Paige. And this has been Animates. As usual, please like us on Facebook, Animates Podcast. Give us a follow on Twitter at Animates. You can send us an email with your thoughts, questions, concerns, comments, solicitations for conversation. That email address is animates at gmail.com with the numeral eight. As always, please rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. It will help other people find the show. And again, as always, thank you for listening.